Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force co-chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes discusses the new book, Privacy and Power, a transatlantic dialogue in the shadow of the NSA affair, with its editor, Russell Miller, and Ralph Posher, who contributed an essay. Wittes also has an essay in the volume. The discussion was recorded on April 18th, 2017. This is a little bit of a departure from our usual uh, security by the book, or what, what we call at Lawfare, the Hoover Book Soiree series, um, because this is a, uh, first of all, uh, an, it's an edited volume, uh, and that's, that's different from what we normally do. And so we have two of the authors and the editor here today or three of the authors, I guess, insofar as I'm one of them. Um, but the second thing is that this is a, a project that I have been involved in sort of from the beginning when my two guests uh, organized this, this remarkable conference in, in, in Freiburg a number of years ago. Uh, in this period of time when I, I sort of want to start by taking you back to this, when, when the big issue in transatlantic American-European relations, and particularly American-German relations, uh, involved surveillance and involved uh, a gentleman named Edward Snowden and did not involve NATO or a man named Donald Trump. Um, and there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when this was the issue that separated uh, Europeans and Americans uh, in philosophical sensibilities, in political sensibilities, and was the principal stressor on, on uh, U.S.-European relations, uh, particularly U.S.-German relations. Um, and this book flows out of that. Um, and it flows out of uh, an effort by our two guests, uh, to organize a serious conversation about those stresses and those tensions and the underlying tectonic plates of the values separation uh, from Europe to the United States about uh, surveillance privacy and, uh, and Edward Snowden and what, from an from a American perspective, sounds like a, a, a strange formulation for it, which is the NSA affair, or L'Affaire NSA. Um, so as per usual with, with these formats, we uh, do not take audience questions. Uh, feel free to ask your questions after the session. Uh, but Russell, I want to start with you. Where did this, how did this project start? And, and Give us an overview of what you guys were trying to do with, with, this, with this book and with the, with the activity that led to the book. Okay, well, first, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you, Ben, both for contributing and for, for supporting the project, and especially tonight's event. Um, I had gone to Freiburg, Germany um, in the, the early spring of 2013 with the intention of focusing on some research related to, to something that's, that's not so far afield from these questions, but we didn't see this coming. So the research mm -hmm. I intended to pursue 
at a really remarkable center in, in Freiburg at the university, the Center for um, Security and Society in Europe at the University of Freiburg, was to explore Germany's constitutional regime for militant democracy. It's a whole range of illiberal constitutional policies that are meant to, to prevent um, illiberal crises in the German democratic landscape. So that was my intention. But that was in the, uh, the spring of, of 2013. And I was doing my work quietly in a nice office in Freiburg as an American based at a center named Security and Society in Europe when the Snowden crisis um, hit. And it was just sort of expected that I would be able to account for um, the dram dramatic uh, uh, elements of, of this story as an American working at this, at this center. So I took up the challenge, unexpected challenge. But um, Ralph uh, Poscher, who's one of the directors of this center, and I agreed um, right away that uh, the, the most important thing we could do would be to bring experts, scholars, commentators, um, from both sides of the Atlantic together in conversation. So we did that um, as, as soon as we could in, uh, in the days still uh, following the, uh, the revelations. And that was the, the foundation um, for this event. And I have to say, if, if we had at that time something more in mind than simply opening up a dialogue about what looked to be far more divisive than the routine crises that seem to befall the transatlantic um, relationship. And it's a, maybe a four or five year cycle where there's a, there's a new crisis um, de jour. If, if we had something beyond just the ambition of opening up a dialogue there, it was, it was something like our intuition that this particular crisis or affair signaled that there might be fundamental differences on an understanding or or approach to privacy and intelligence gathering in these two communities, Europe, but particularly Germany and the US. And in that sense, it was not just an attempt to document th this difference, but to pose a challenge, to establish that difference in a way that posed a challenge to assumptions about shared values, shared values that might be at the foundation of something like the West, or universal values like um, our human rights regime, even. If if the transatlantic community could split so, so categorically on a question that seemed so, so fundamental like privacy, we thought there was a, there was a bigger set of questions to explore. That, those were the things that animated our, our work. Okay, so we have, we have here a, a German scholar <laughs> who's very familiar with the American political and legal landscape and an American scholar who's very familiar with the German uh, political and legal landscape. So I want to ask you both the same question uh, and see how different the answer is. And the question is, how would you describe the difference between the German and American understanding of the relationship between privacy and intelligence gathering? Uh, and to what extent do you look across the Atlantic and say, those people are insane? So I'll start, start with you, Ralph. Okay. <laughs> not, not to, well, and you have, to, you have to answer both as yourself and then answer for, for Yeah, I, I actually, <laughs> right, right. So no, actually, no, 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 I, okay. I'm actually less interested in your sort of, in, in the answer for yourself than what is the chasm here? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, 
uh, when uh, this broke out and we had Russell as a fellow there, uh, Russell gave a talk uh, on, the, on the history of the Pfizer court. And I was sitting in this talk and all of a sudden it, it dawned on me what was so different uh, because um, my impression was it was not really that um, um, the regimes were not that different. We have something like the Pfizer courts, um, uh, but uh, what was different was, uh, or what was at the time very different was um, the, uh, the reaction in Europe, uh, which was very strong. And the reaction in the U.S., which was, which seemed at least from Europe, from the U.S. perspective, rather mute. But then I heard that uh, what gave rise to the Pfizer court was a vehement reaction of the political system in the U.S. when they found out that intelligence was, intelligence was actually misused. And they installed this whole system. And what, uh, for both of us then, in the conversation appeared to be one of the big differences between those two cultures is that the one culture reacts when there is an actual problem. Whereas especially this German culture has this preemptive uh, temptation uh, to uh, already react uh, when there might be something on the horizon, to formulate abstract categories like the right to data protection that already step in before even a, um, a concrete danger had materialized. Whereas the reaction in the US when the concrete danger had materialized was very much the same than uh, the reaction was already in Germany when they were just at the horizon. Because at the time, uh, there was neither uh, concrete evidence that the NSA um, <coughs> surveillance data had been misused in the political processes in the, in the US. Uh, there was only faint uh, hints uh, at what it could have done in Germany. We still don't know if there was industrial spionage involved or not. We might come to this topic later. But uh, there, there was no concrete um, damage done yet. Uh, and, and I found it really eye-opening when I heard your talk that when you had this in the U.S., this moment where you could see that well, there was actual misuse, that you had a strong reaction. And uh, we, had the, we had the reaction already preemptively. And that seemed to us at the time, I think, uh, the big difference between those cultures. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Russ? When, uh, when you, I would when, say that the craziest thing that you encounter when you, when you condition it in, the, in those kinds of terms is that the absolute confidence, and this plays out in jurisprudence and, in, and even in the vocabulary in Europe, the absolute confidence that these questions can be managed and resolved in the legal process by the judiciary. Mm -hmm. This is a question of law um, for the judiciary. And so I have to say, I mean, the uh, two of the chapters in the book, they're set apart as in, in a, a section of the book entitled Framing the Debate, Ben's um, contribution is one of them. But it really distills this and embodies this fundamental difference that for Europeans, particularly the Germans, these mm -hmm. questions are really questions of law to be administered and resolved as a matter for the judiciary. And in the context of the United States and our perspective, there is still some sense that these are questions largely left to the political sphere. And, and we've made some kind of learned experience, maybe moving from the church committee forward through even something like the USA Freedom Act, that the political apparatus can respond to our concerns on these questions. That's the big distinction. Uh, I said that, that your chapter and another chapter written by the director of a Max Planck Institute that does research on public international law in Germany, they're partnered in, in the book and they really embodied this dramatic difference. We, we can distill them mm. to something like Ben's chapter insisting that the Germans just grow up in a real politics sense. 
And the partner piece written by um, Professor Peters offers back the Germans, or the, the Americans, excuse me, the Americans should obey the law. And this is really the, the big shock, I think, and the big point at which the, the dialogue um, meets an impasse. So one, one way to understand this dichotomy is that the American approach to these issues is fundamentally procedural in nature. And the German approach is fundamentally an approach based on the designation, the identification of substantive, yes. substantive rights that are, that are identified mm -hmm. formally and enforced, as you say, prospectively. Um, and that for Americans, it's basically good enough to say, you have the following oversight systems. They have integrity, assuming they do. <laughs> Um, and that here are the standards they're going to apply. We understand that they were, they applied those standards. The rules were followed. We're not going to worry too much about how much surveillance there was as a consequence of that. Whereas the German system really looks at this, at the sort of volume, the amount, the question of, of of whether somebody had a, had a sort of substantive right to be free of it and has a sort of substantive anxiety about, about the degree of surveillance. And I'm, I'm interested, both of your sense, am I overstating that? Or is there really a, you know, a procedural versus substantive kind of transatlantic division with kind of Britain geographically and philosophically in the middle mm. well i wonder if it's uh, if it's only if it's only that i think one dimension that is that might still be missing uh, to kind of um, fill in the picture is uh, why is it that uh, we put so much weight on the law and uh, not so much on politics and it's uh, it's described in the volume and i think in multiple chapters uh, that's just the experience of the, the bad experience that Germans had with uh, uh, with uh, secret services, uh, with two um, uh, with two um, uh, dictatorial regimes that they never found out uh, a way of their own. Right? Uh, we needed the Allies to bomb us out uh, <coughs> of uh, the uh, the the abyss that we uh, got ourselves in after Weimar, and that that deeply uh, kind of formed this um, uh, this uh, political experience and the distrust against the political system to be able to correct itself. So uh, something like the church committee, we, we wouldn't trust that, uh, I think, in our system, I think there's less trust that uh, the, the political system alone would correct itself. So that is why there's so much emphasis on the judiciary. And uh, then um, uh, I think that, that seems to be the, um, and that, that means that all these questions, and that might give it a kind of a substantial touch, um, are located at the level of the Constitution, because that gives the courts the power to do this. But then if you look at it, uh, I think your Pfizer courts, they need substantive standards. Only procedure won't do. Uh, and um, when you look out at how uh, our constitutional court protects these rights, that are basically also uh, at least very strong procedural elements. Uh, so they framed this right as a right uh, that um, 
you have to define the purpose of the data collection. You have the right to be informed which kind of data has been collected. Uh, you have to have special um, um, uh, special legal basis if you want to change uh, the purpose uh, that you use the data for. You have the right of the data to be deleted after a certain time. So these are all procedural regimes. And then we have um, uh, in some areas uh, uh, even these, these types of we, we excluded uh, from the secret services uh, from some of their surveillance, telecommunication surveillance. We excluded actually the courts and installed something like uh, the, the FISA courts, the FISA court regime with a parliamentarian oversight. So it's all procedural too. So I think it's rather the level where I we, we put say, it. Though, I, lo I love this. This is a great moment that the, the procedure you've described is accurate. Really, the courts, when they talk, talk about this in Germany, they really focus on, on detail, like the, the number of days in which data mm -hmm. can be retained, um, how quickly after its, um, its acquisition must the intelligence services notify. I mean, it's very detailed procedural um, framework, but it's not the kind of procedure that Ben was right. referring to. It's, it's a set of regulations that can be judicially administered or judicially mm -hmm. enforced. They're procedural standards for the judiciary to enforce. And the procedure, and I really like the, the gap that opened up even in the, mm -hmm. in the explanation, the procedure that Ben is referring to is the political process, the democratic sure. process. Um, so I'll, I'll affirm, I'll say that your answer even affirms, even though you were trying to, to disaffirm. maybe uh -huh. dispute both, both, the, both affirm I, and dispute. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some of what you're describing is, 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 a, is very much a refutation. Um, and no, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt No, that's okay, but, but so I'll, I'll try my own, own attempt at, at refuting the claim. It's, it's a common way of framing the rights regimes on the continent, um, particularly Germany, relative to the United States, at least from a comparative public law perspective, to refer to them roughly in categories like substantive, especially in Germany, and procedural in the context of the US. But I have to say that one of the fundamental lessons, we thought this might be true, um, that's why we pursued this project. One of the fundamental lessons of the project was that with respect to this value of privacy, there, there is a broad pluralist approach to understanding what it could mean. And to, to pursue that thesis as between these two societies means that we can't push the generalization substantive and procedural <coughs> too far. And one of the great lessons of the book was to see um, and this is one of the reasons it had to be, I think it had to be an edited volume, was to allow a number of different voices from each community to emerge. There are Germans who emerge in the context of this book, for example, who are, who are quite skeptical of the, the regime that unfolds in the mm. context of the, of the German constitutional framework that might, that might actually be characterized as rather hawkish on, on security. And of course, the re reverse is true a number of the American contributors are extremely skeptical and, and have a great deal of anxiety about, um, about the regime. So that would be my, my concern about over, overusing that. So, that so, un so unpack that. If that's not the fundamental division, what is the fundamental division? I mean, there's, there's something very deep that is, and it's not the whatever the trench in the middle yeah. of the Atlantic is, that is causing Europeans to have fundamentally different attitudes about privacy and surveillance than Americans. Uh, 
at least at the legislative level yeah. that are authorizing yeah. these statutes. And, and so what is the fundamental values gap here uh, that is different in Europe from in the United States? Well, I attended a, a conference that my predecessor at my chair organized in Berlin where he, uh, where he got together experts from um, also from the US but mainly from uh, EU countries. And it wasn't that there was a consensus, but what was really remarkable that the sensitivities in those uh, uh, from people coming from countries that had a totalitarian past, from the East, from Spain, from Italy, from Greece, were were high, were like they were in Germany. Whereas the Britons, um, they were quite relaxed about all these issues. Mm, and I think it really has to do with this collective memory and the distrust into a state that collects information, the misuse that is possible with this information, and the inability of the political system to correct it. So I think that, uh, and it's, it's probably a, a divide that, that also runs through Europe. And I think there are many states in Europe that have this past, so that kind of is uh, not unrepresentative, this experience for Europe. Uh, but I think that, that um, makes, uh, makes a big difference. Mm. Do you think but, that is that the fundamental? Yeah, I have to say that is, that is a, a credible and important contribution to understanding this. It's also sort of the one that, that the, at the level of popular commentary or the media mm -hmm. that's available. And so one of the challenges I, I, I felt I had to pursue was to, to try to, to go a little, not necessarily deeper, but to, to find mm -hmm. a set of alternative explanations <coughs> alongside that. It, it seemed to explain, in some sense, too much. Um, and I guess at some level, you could identify a whole range of just positive law or institutional differences that are really fundamental that, that set up this divide. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the most superficial things you could highlight would be that the German Constitution textually actually uses the word privacy and provides for a positive textual protection for privacy, whereas the American Constitution doesn't. And so there's a, there's a few structural differences. Another might be something like the, the different nature of the separation of powers in a presidential or parliamentary regime, for example. That presents a different set of demands and expectations for whether it has to be the judiciary or the political process that might, mm -hmm. might control for these questions. So I found, I found a whole range of, of structural issues, textual positive law issues that might add and further mm -hmm. develop this. But I have to say, in, in putting this volume together, we discovered some other things that I'll just I'll reference here and, and see how the two of you respond to them. But one is the possibility that the German, maybe European, but German fetish for privacy predated the National Socialist experience. And that poses the question, what would, what would the roots of, of that interest be? And this emerged in a really beautiful chapter mm. in the book from someone who um, surveyed the films of Fritz Lang, <laughs> the, the Weimar era filmmaker, long before the ascendance of the National Socialists. And he was making films in the 20s already that <coughs> expressed a deep anxiety, popular, heavily visited films that expressed a deep anxiety in German society for technology and the role of technology yeah. in German society in a, a kind of um, you could think, of course, of the film Metropolis, right, as one example. But the main films that are surveyed in this chapter, it's a really beautiful chapter, um, are the films 
that, that invoke the character Dr. Mabuza. Dr. Mabuza is this mysterious, all-seeing, all-knowing, sort of big brother character that, feature, that features in a number of films already in the 20s. And this is, this is evident even as I began to read more broadly in German privacy scholarship. If you read German privacy law scholars, one of the things that emerges quite quickly is a categorical, I mean, really a categorical rejection of technology. There's a, there's a categorical sense that technology will only, will only serve ill ends. It can't, it can't be more nuanced or more balanced than that. Um, and in this scholarship, it's absolutely common to offset the anxiety over technology. In contemporary German privacy scholars, to offset that anxiety with references to a, a pursuit of privacy that, that is referred to as a paradise, even and literally even the Garden of Eden or Rousseau's Garden. And so I think there is something in the German mind, in German <coughs> culture, that also that informs this divide that has a kind of a kind of distaste for and anxiety about about the nature of technology. It's in, in some sense old German romanticism yeah, romant rearing its head here. And I, I have to say I just love the references to the dream, the, the ideal state of the Garden of Eden as the metaphor for paradise, both missing the fact that it's the apple, right? Not as to mention that exactly, God was surveilling. Exactly, right? <laughs> These two things that the whole time God was watching, right? The most surveilled society in history, and that it's the apple device that ends up causing the fall. <laughs> These are missed completely. But Rousseau's Garden and the Garden of Eden are invoked as the, the ideal dream state to which this ambition for privacy, and, and there's something there already deeply in the, in the German sort of soul before we get to the So this, is, this is fascinating. Let me, I, I want to focus a little bit on the American side of this, um, because it seems to me that exactly the pessimism that you describe, mm -hmm. Ralph, about uh, in German attitudes about the state's ability to get, to get surveillance abuses under control mm -hmm. We have kind of in the American experience exactly the opposite history, right? Which is, it's actually we have quite a history of intelligence abuses. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have a remarkable history yeah. of political response to them. Yeah. And of bringing the intelligence community under control of the rule of law. And I wonder if that set of experiences in which, you know, so the, the, the FISA process is interesting here. It's not simply a process of reviewing surveillance. It's also a regular process of reviewing the law under which we review surveillance. And we're going through at the start of one of those for, for 702 this year. Uh, and I can think just sitting here FISA is passed in 1978. It is, uh, there's a major revision in 94, in 2001, in 2003, 2007, and 2012, right? So, I mean, we have these, these quite regular episodic revisitations. And I wonder if we have ex collectively sort of it's not that we don't experience intelligence abuses, but we have mm -hmm. this 
confidence <laughs> that is rooted in a certain repetitive, iterative experience that we're actually democratically capable of, of getting yeah, those intelligence bunch. abuses under control. And fr so I'm interested from a German point of view, yeah. does that come off as delusional arrogance <laughs> or simply a different historical experience that may quite reasonably give rise to a different set of attitudes about what, gov what we should and shouldn't allow government to do, because we'll let them do things, they may abuse them, and then we'll get that under control. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, there, there's, uh, there's nothing delusional about it, because it, it is your, your actual collective experience that you have made, and I think it's a very valuable experience that I think Germans are, in a way, uh, still missing. And it even has another, and, and this has even a, a, a deeper root, because uh, um, in Germany um, there's also still, I think, especially what, uh, as far as military and police and the secret services are involved, um, in the division between the state and society. Uh, the state uh, has been, in German history, um, developed not under democratic um, um, uh, auspices, but uh, has developed under constitutional um, arrangements. So the, the state was identified by the monarch, and there was the uh, bourgeois society on the other side. And especially the military, the police, and naturally uh, then also the secret police uh, was always identified with the monarch and uh, the, the society had nothing to do with it. And I think it will, it will still take us a while uh, to become aware in the same sense that you are aware that these are our secret services, that this is our police. <laughs> but it's still regarded, I think, by many in Germany that this is a business of the state and they do not identify in the same way democratically with all of the institutions of the state as I think that is very natural for the U.S. citizen to do. Okay, so and, uh, unpack that, because that's a mind-boggling yeah. statement from an American perspective, yeah. right? This is a, a democratic constitutional republic. The, the uh, organs of state security are accountable to democratic actors. They are responsive, they are constituted under a legal system that everybody would acknowledge is democratic. Why is there this deus ex machina sense of these security services as just these things that exist, that are you know, organs of the state that aren't representative of me somehow? I think it, it has to do with uh, the uh, slow process and late process of democratization of the German society. I mean, look, when does it start? It was a very a disastrous experiment in the 20s. Then there, were, there was horror until the mid-40s. Uh, then it was a kind of uh, yeah, under-allied uh, protection installed in the 50s. So the period that we have really had a rich democratic experience is far, rather short compared to other nations. And I think it, uh, uh, it just takes a while. And, uh, and there is still also in our legal system, we just had decisions on uh, the parliamentary check on uh, secret services, where even our constitutional court, at least one Senate of the two, uh, alluded again to this uh, arcane area of executive preemption that cannot be even inspected by secret parliamentary commissions. And I think there is still this idea uh, that the executive has a certain area, like the monarch had an area where the bourgeois society wasn't 
wasn't allowed to look into. And uh, we st these decisions are one or two months old. Mm, so it's a, it's a, it's even in constitutional law, it's a constant figure that there is an executive area where even the parliament, even under, under, under conditions of secrecy, is not even exposed allowed to look into. And it, and it, it relates to um, the cooperation between our BND and uh, the NSA. Mm -hmm. And uh, the threat uh, of the Americans, I think, not even very credible, that, that uh, they would stop any cooperation if they would give, uh, the, 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 uh, give information about the cooperation to secret parliamentary committees, uh, was enough uh, to evoke this figure and to cut parliament out. So there's no oversight on this area. We still don't know uh, if this uh, cooperation also involved industrial spionage. We don't know. We will never know. And I think that is something that is uh, that's still uh, in this spirit. And that is something how uh, Germans uh, look at these organizations or these these uh, these uh, branches of government. And I'll say the, in the the separation of powers infrastructure. This is this is straightforward and almost banal for for people as familiar as all of us are. But the parliamentary system reinforces this understanding. Um, yeah, you can tour the Bundestag and. And I had one tour guide stop in front of one of the offices and say, this is the chancellor's office in the parliament. <laughs> yeah. And I said, don't, don't show this to Americans. This makes us <laughs> uncomfortable. And he said, but you can, you can see the chancellery from here. And I said, that doesn't help. Right? And so their infrastructure, what that means is, and we've talked about this, is that the control that, that, that you understand as emanating maybe from civil society and expressing itself in Congress or in congressional oversight has to operationalize in the form of the opposition in parliament. Yeah. Because the, the majority in parliament is, in some curious way, the executive. Right. She has an office there. And so it was really important. In the book, we have, we have a chapter from uh, a member of the Bundestag, Konstantin von Notz. He's the point person for the opposition Green Party on this issue. And that's, that's one of the important contributions in the book is to signal that rights of control from some kind of democratic platform or infrastructure is going to be really the rights of control of the opposition in the parliament and not the parliament itself. So there is this big category of event that happened subsequent to the public, not to the publication, but to the writing of the vast majority of this book. Uh, and for those of you who do not follow German surveillance developments. Um, <laughs> you have to start right now. Yeah. Uh, this is a set of revelations about BND, the, which is the sort of German uh, version of NSA practices that, shall we say, look a little bit more NSA-like than a lot of Germans imagined at the time that they were uh, uh, outraged by NSA's activities. Now, the wrinkle, and what makes this a, a complicated case rather than just an example of, of, well, you do it too, is that this activity was by and large done in cooperation with NSA. So many Germans see it not as an example of necessarily hypocrisy on, on the part of their own political culture, but as an extension of the larger set of, of what, from their point of view, are, are scandalous activities on the part of, of NSA. And the scandal is that German, uh, German uh, agencies were 
involved in or complicit in. So I'm, I just throw this open to you both. How do the BND revelations change the discussion in the book? The yeah, whether, whether there's mm -hmm. been a kind, of, a kind of reckoning from German policymakers right. or so, the so German is it, street. So, so is, this, is this all, ha, has this resolved more toward, hey, we got really mad at the Americans about what Snowden revealed. Turned out we were doing more or less the same thing. Or is it, uh, we got really mad at the Americans. Turns out our people were helping them. Now we're mad at them, too. Yes. Sort of how, how has this played? And I add a couple of chapters as well, is you know, <laughs> the emergence of you know, nothing like 9-11, but the emergence of some incidences of terror in Germany sure. for the first time. Um, the events in Paris and in, in Brussels play large and loom large in, in the German mentality or media as well. So all of those things are layered onto this, this story. I would say that um, my experience was in, in assembling the volume and working with authors across, across Germany and then in, in being in contact with um, people working in, this, in the security or intelligence policy sector in Germany, um, those in the know spent those years after 2013 trying as diplomatically as possible to prepare German society for this discovery. Hmm. Um, so at repeated events um, where I thought I had been asked to give a talk as sort of the punching bag, let's bring an American in and um, we'll, we'll show them what real privacy looks like. At any one of those events where some representative of the German intelligence community or intelligence policy sector made a presentation, it was routinely the the message, stay calm, carry on. We're going to find out that we need the Americans, that we're dependent on this intelligence, and we're probably doing the same thing. There was, a, there was an attempt already to mitigate this. So I, I wasn't so surprised mm -hmm. at the revelations. Um, you could see elements of the policy sector trying to, trying to soften the blow before it was landed. Yeah, and and I think what it uh, what it steered was um, um, the uh, and I think a very very uh, good reaction in maturing and in, uh, in in handling all these questions is uh, to develop regimes that would allow us to get at least some transparency into this um, uh, into this area that uh, allow to install some effective parliamentary oversight. Uh, I think judicial oversight doesn't doesn't do much uh, in this area. And uh, the, that the result, though, however, is, I mean, it's just absolutely necessary. If, if you're going to have this judicially administered culture on these questions, you have to have positive law in place. And one of the major reforms, the BND reform, the reform of the German intelligence services, actually legalized some of the processes that you described, the discovery. Yeah, that was. <laughs> the discovery that, in fact, the, the German intelligence services were acting in many of the same ways in some sense is only problematic that it wasn't legislated. And that was one of the responses. The response mm -hmm. was to simply enact law 
to authorize the BND to do and, and some of these things uh, <clears throat> were already, um, and th which were much more intrusive than the NSA, actually, because yes. uh, what, uh, what they, uh, we have uh, already in, I think, the first decision was in the mid-'80s, the second in the 90s, um, that our um, uh, foreign services, they intercept, um, um, on a, um, uh, based on keywords, any international communication, not only the metadata, but the substance. Mm. And if they hit these keywords, and uh, it just wasn't known to people, even though it it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't hidden uh, because it was in the law. There were these two constitutional decisions on it, and um, and so people started to come to um, uh, <laughs> come to know about these things. And then I think a good reaction was to try, on the one hand, to put it into legal forms, but on the other hand, to think about. Uh, how one can um, uh, can democratically manage these um, uh, these uh, institutions, which are, and I think it's it's nothing, and I think there uh, you can, see, but you can also see it in France where they think about installing. Uh, I don't know how, how far the project has gone, but it's installing a special agency uh, that is uh, meant to do the oversight work. Uh, they don't want to give it to Parliament, um, but I think it, it, there is an intrinsic tension between secret services and democracy. I mean. It is a structural problem for any system, I think, to have uh, a democratic control of something that's secret. So, um, and uh, so I think it, it is really a problem. And I think every uh, democratic system is in this issue. And uh, there's, I think, probably no optimal solution to it. But I think it started a conversation about this in Germany. And it uh, didn't always go as far as I think it should have gone. But um, uh, so I think they became to reckon, and um, and then the other thing I think which 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 still I think which is a little bit different, and I think we talked about it as at the conference too. Um, one can say uh, well what the NSA does is just the same, then, but it's also a question of scale and power, mm, and so the the the, the, the volume is not yeah. uh, by chance called privacy and power. It has also to do with scale and power, and I think uh, there's a certain point where scale turns into quality. And I think one, one maybe has to come to grips with that, too. What does it mean if you have very powerful institutions that do I something? I a follow-up, if I, if I Yeah, may. please. If, if we could characterize the, the post-Snowden Germany <coughs> um, reaction as maybe a, something like a, a maturing or a sobering, if, if that's mm -hmm. the direction in which we're pointing, it's really important to note in this story that the idealism has only shifted to a new polity. And mm. that idealism and the polity is really the European Union. And, and that's one of the key elements of, of this project was to discover the supranationality of, of the way in which Europe will address these questions. And we see sort of, in my estimation, none of that kind of sobriety and maturity from the European Union on these questions. So this, is, so this brings me to a, the, the point that I wanted to get to. One of the, the elements that is, uh, follows from Ralph's last comment is that you know, if, you, if you hypothesize that NSA's authorities are actually quite narrow, but that its capacity is enormous, right? And a lot of European state security services have authorities that are quite vast, but capabilities that are relatively narrow. Mm -hmm. um, and we used to be able to say, we don't really care very much, because these are matters between states and their peoples. 
And yeah, we all know that everybody does espionage. But now, when NSA has really broad capabilities, and the narrowness allows it to have a pretty free hand overseas as long as it's not targeting US persons. If you happen to be one of the 95% of the world that's not a US person, but that um, I don't know what percentage of those, that large number of people use US carriers of one sort or another, Google, Facebook, it's a very large number of people. You're potentially subjected to this very narrow authority that NSA has to collect very freely against non-US persons overseas using US carriers. So from an American perspective, that's a pretty narrow authority. But from a rest of the world perspective, it's like you know there's a big open target on your chest, right? And it's a, it's a sort of open season on you. And so we have this kind of internationalization of surveillance authorities, mm -hmm. which brings you to this sort of EU. And the European Union's kind of carved out this idea that every, everybody in the world has a privacy interest with respect to the behavior of every other government in the world. And the United States really rejects that, um, uh, or at least largely rejects that. And so I'm interested in the question, is, is this one of, you know, a fundamental division going forward, that, that the United States is going to be in the position of contending that privacy is a national right? Yeah. and a domestic right, mm -hmm. whereas the EU is going to be a sort of evangelist for the idea that privacy is a, is, is a right that everybody has individually against every government in the world. And is that, is that the core of the dispute going forward? Yeah, when you asked earlier what, what are the contours of, of this deep divide, you could draw up a set of binaries or dichotomies, but it would be things like national as opposed to universal or national mm -hmm. as opposed to um, supranational set of values. It would be things like we've already talked about, politics as opposed to judicial approaches to these things. This is, this is fundamental, the, the question of, of whether privacy is culturally contingent in some way and whether culture aligns with national identity and a nation's law or whether it can be universalized or supranationalized in the context of the European Union, which can use its market share mm -hmm. to try to, to spread that particular perspective. But more fundamentally even than that, yeah. do you mm -hmm. have, do I have a privacy right against the German government? And do you have a privacy right against the US government when you're not here. We all agree that, you know, as sitting there, if they're surveilling this device, you know, you have a right to privacy. But, but you go home to, and, and, you know, sitting in Freiburg, do you have a privacy right against activity by the US government? Or do we think of, uh, you know, and is, is there a fundamental, you know, disjuncture between European and American privacy uh, understandings of that fundamental question? I think probably uh, that there is a tendency uh, when, when you discuss a matter like that uh, in, in Europe that you, you, that you see it under rather uh, not a citizen's right but uh, a universal human rights perspective. I think you have the European uh, 
um, a Charter of Human Rights, where um, it's not only the uh, it's not only the um, European Court of Justice, but also the European Court of Human Rights that stresses uh, privacy. Um, and uh, so there, it's already addressed as a human right. If it's a human right, uh, so I think it, it, the tendency is to extend it. Mm. And uh, I think for as for Germany itself, uh, we have a totally different perspective on fundamental rights. They are not they are not coded territorially, but they are coded uh, by a government power. So wherever there is German government power, this government power is uh, is bound by our fundamental rights, whoever they address. Uh, so. Uh, and I think, and I understand, and that came out at the conference, as I remember. Um, like Alec Whelan had the whole text why you should yes. switch the model, but yes. uh, I think entrenched in your uh, in, in your tradition is the territorial idea. Mm. But yes. something like Guantanamo wouldn't work for us because it doesn't matter where German soldiers, officials are; they they will be bound by uh, by see, our fundamental rights. This divide already in the preambles of the two constitutional regimes. The American constitutional preamble calls for. Um, the common security for a nation being constructed by the Constitution. Mm. And the German constitutional preamble seeks to embed Germany in a universalizable regime, peace in the world. And so you can see that, that present. I would say the, we, we can't answer that question yet. If, um, if it is true that it's the European judicial institutions that are advancing what you're characterizing as this universalizable ambition, it, it's an, it's an inadequate sample to test that, that theory in the sense that, and we've talked about this um, independently, in the sense that the European Union and its institutions, the court in particular, can pursue that rights agenda without having to carry the security responsibility that ought to temper or frame that responsibility. That is, our understanding of what could count as privacy should be offset against a polity's responsibility to provide security. And as long as the European Union doesn't play the lead in Europe for the provision of security, it, it's, too soon, it's too soon to assess the integrity of this, of this European project so, with respect to privacy. So that's a great segue to my last question, which is you, you've, you've described a forward-looking set of set of questions and anxieties. And I'm, I'm interested in, in the question of what this project, so the, mm. the world has you know, kind of moved on from Edward Snowden. Um, and, um, and most people, at least in this town, aren't really spending time or anymore sort of thinking about the NSA affair, which is kind of amazing considering <laughs> where we were a year and a half ago. Um, so what's the broader lesson of this project for the European-American relationship, the German-American relationship, and this constellation of issues going forward? Mm -hmm. I have my own thoughts, but I'd like to hear. Okay. I'd like to hear from, from the European perspective. Well, I think that um, um, we, we mentioned now on, on how many levels uh, there are differences in the approaches to this issue. And um, I think uh, it, will, it will be some kind of sand in the, in the otherwise maybe uh, smooth running machine between in, in our relations. And it will come up at specific issues. And I think what, what has to be done is uh, to address it 
uh, with specific issues. Uh, and because that's another, uh, I think, difference we, we, we have only touched upon is that uh, in the legal cultures, uh, we tend to uh, generalize ideas, principles, and that's something rather alien to your legal culture. So I think what we, what we have to come to is to see where do we have, like, uh, we have the safe harbor problem that has been, there has been, um, uh, we put a plaster on it, it's going to last for another two years, and then the issue is going to come up again, and you have to, they have two years' time now to come up with a regime. And I think um, uh, as long as the EU <laughs> doesn't fall apart, um, you have to take it serious. So <laughs> if this uh, relation is, 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 is supposed to run smoothly, as it does uh, right now, uh, then they have to come up with a solution there. And there are uh, specific uh, issues that have to be addressed, uh, like uh, the, the, the status that has been now under privacy shield uh, contemplated has to be more formalized. There has to be some kind of uh, legal protection uh, put behind it, and, and so on. And so I think we have to just work through these issues. If there's the passenger name record thing, uh, so uh, the anxiety in Europe is that you are unjustified on, on such a list, and there has to be so, a procedure for delisting, for example. And then they have to sit together and uh, kind of find a solution to this problem. So I think it has to be a piecemeal approach, um, addressing issues as they come up. And I think that, that should also be something that uh, should be acceptable to the American side. Uh, not, uh, and that, that, that might be, uh, there were some reactions in the EU to say, now we have to come to a general uh, data protection agreement with the US. I think that. <laughs> That will probably not work. Uh, but uh, if we go issue by issue, uh, and I think uh, you, uh, these problems will, will, will come up again, uh, then uh, they, they have to be worked through issue by issue you know, with, a, with a clear sight on what is actually at stake. Uh, not a general principle, but the actual uh, worry that you have. And you have then to understand what, have to it, what an incredible signal of compromise that is yeah, and it would from, be from a, a German or European lawyer to say that in a legal culture or a tradition that, that operated with overarching abstract concepts of rights like privacy to suggest that that they'd be willing to disaggregate right to yes. extend the olive branch of of considering this on an issue by issue basis this is an incredible um, signal of compromise i don't know how widespread it would be in German policy making. On behalf of Germany. <laughs> I would say um, to, to sort of develop that a little bit is that um, that what we might offer then in this spirit of compromise is to come to recognize the, and I hope this is part of the, the lesson of the volume, to recognize that values like privacy are, are deeply pluralistic. There are various ways to think about these and that the European approach is, is deeply held. And so the American approach in constant dismay and and disdain for this fetish or passion for privacy, um, we, might, we might come to a point where we could at least understand the, the place from which that comes, and that would improve the dialogue as well. Russ Miller, Ralph Pasher, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.